Good morning, everyone. How's it going? Good to see you guys. Uh, as Chris said, my name is Tony Sorcy. Uh, I lead the young adult ministry here at Bethel Church. I am definitely not our senior pastor, Pastor Steve. He uh, has the week off, and so do all the rest of the qualified pastors around here. So that means you're stuck with me. Uh, apologize for that. Welcome to Bethel. Aren't you glad you came this morning? Okay, I'm going to be in the Psalms this morning, so you guys can open up your Bibles to the Psalms. But before I get into any specific psalm, I want to talk to you about the psalms in general. The psalms are an endangered species. Some of you are thinking, endangered species? What you talking about, Willis? The psalms are an endangered species species. Let me ask you this. When was the last time you heard from the Psalms? Spoke of the Psalms or saw the Psalms yourself? I mean, you might have a rare Psalm sighting at a Christian bookstore or see a Psalm on an encouragement card, but really how often? And in thinking about this a little further, you know, a while back I wanted to start studying the Psalms. And so I went to go get some commentaries on the Psalms. You know, I had a hard time finding commentaries on the Psalms. The book of Romans, 1 Corinthians, plenty to choose from there. Take your pick. But the Psalms, not so much. I wonder why. Why are the Psalms so scarce? I don't know. What about you personally? Let me ask you, how do you view the Psalms? When I mention the Psalms, what comes to your mind? What kind of personal interaction do you have with the Psalms? And when was the last time you spent any significant time in the Psalms? Well, how about this? When you're thinking about studying a particular portion of scripture, a subject, or a topic, how far down the list would we have to get before we saw the Psalms? I'd have to think that for most, the Psalms wouldn't be tops on that list. And I think it's mostly due to how the Psalms are viewed. And if you ask me, I think the Psalms have gotten a bad rap. I think the Psalms have gotten a bad rap. I think for most, the Psalms are viewed as like the hallmark portion of God's word. They are inspiring. They are devotional. A good place to open your Bible and do a little reading on a nice summer morning with a cup of coffee in hand and life is good. The Psalms bring a smile to our faces. I think the Psalms are viewed as sort of like chicken soup for the Christian soul. A collection of nice, cute, inspirational poems that exist for us. To provide us comfort, to provide us encouragement, joy, inspiration, or whatever else we might need in any given moment. And really, that's how a lot of us treat the Psalms. We often pick and choose from our different favorite Psalms, and depending on what our particular situation or our mood is at that time, we'll determine which Psalm we go to. Or maybe you just go to the Psalms with not any one particular in mind. You just start skimming the Psalms until you find one that looks good. Preferably one that's not 50 verses long. Or 176 verses long, like Psalm 119. And although the Psalms are filled with inspiring verses and encouraging promises that many of us love and we go to them time and time again. And it's good to do that, don't get me wrong. It's better to turn to the scriptures, specifically the Psalms, for encouragement and for comfort. Better that than a box of chocolates or even a box of wine. But my fear is that if we reduce the Psalms to a collection of inspirational one-liners that are strictly meant to inspire us and put smiles on our faces or just get us through the day. We will curse the Psalms to a lifetime 
of wall calendar appearances, sympathy cards, and they will forever be used to over-spiritualize some Christian painting. And we will miss the message of the Psalms as a whole. And I think that that would be a shame. One commentator, in thinking about our neglect and need for the Psalms, he said this, It is possible that we have lost a significant form of expression that should be captured for the spiritual health of our worship. It's an interesting quote. In other words, what this guy is saying is the Psalms, because they are so significantly expressive, are absolutely vital to the overall spiritual health of our own personal worship. And that to neglect them is to our loss. It's to our detriment. God has given us the Psalms, this wonderful portion of inspired scripture, so that we can see what wholehearted, honest, healthy, authentic, personal worship looks like. So let me ask you, how's your worship doing this morning? How healthy is your personal worship? How are your quiet times going? If you're like me, you need to grow big time. If you're like me, you're frustrated. And you want to grow. And don't you want to grow? I want to grow. Don't you want to grow, Bethel? Don't you want to grow in your quiet times? You know what? I want, to, I want to be more faithful in my devotions. I want to grow in my hunger and understanding and knowledge of God's word. I want to have honest, sincere times of prayer where I just pour my heart out. I just lay it all out on the table before God. I want to have times of prayer like that. And so we all desperately need the Psalms for this very reason. And so this morning, before I get into Psalm 100, I want to challenge all of us in here this morning, as we're heading into the new year, to renew your worship. And to do that, to renew our worship, I want to share with you some expressions from the Psalms. And in this, I want to just touch on some of the things that the Psalms teach us as a whole. The first thing I want us all to see is how the Psalms express the entire human experience. The entire human experience. The Psalms engage us. With the full range of human emotion and human experience. All of life's ups and downs are spilled out all over the Psalms. The Psalms sink low into the depths of loneliness, despair, confusion, fear, anxiety, anger, sin, frustration, abandonment, depression, and failure. They also rise to the heights of praise, joy, thanksgiving, celebration, dance, victory, trust, and hope. In the Psalms, the whole of humanity is on full display. Every emotion, every experience, every high, every low is captured in the Psalms. And you know what? They do it all to the glory of God. The Psalms show us how every aspect of one's life can be done to the glory of God. Even in seemingly the most difficult situations. You know what you'll never see on one of these Psalm calendars? You'll never see this. Every night I flood my bed with tears, I drench my couch with my weeping, and my eye wastes away because of my grief. You're not going to see that on any Psalms calendars. Just not. It's not cute. It's not nice. It's not inspirational. It's not going to sell. You know what else you're not going to see on Psalm calendar? Break the arm of the wicked and the evildoer. Call his wickedness to account until you find none. You're not going to see that either. But that's the Psalms. And they're God-inspired. And so from extreme grief and sadness to righteous anger, the Psalms force us to wrestle with things that we would normally just avoid by just skimming over the Psalms. There are some of us in here today, right now, that are going through a lot. 
The Psalms show us that we can go to God with extreme hurt, extreme frustration, and even in, even in confusion, we can cry out, God, what are you doing here? And it's to his glory and it's for our good. The Psalms give us a clear and vivid picture of the human condition, which tells us this, that God has a heart for the human condition. See in the Psalms a God who knows us, a God who understands, and a God who begs us to come to him in the midst of all of life's circumstances. So the Psalms identify with our lives. But on the other hand, the Psalms express to us another very important truth. It's not about us. It's not about us. There are some of you that might be shocked to hear that it's not about you. It might come as a shock to some of you. But the Psalms express to us that it's not about us. In fact, the Psalms express to us the one truth that we've been trying to emphasize around here for I don't know how long. It's all about him. The Psalms tell us that it is not about us. It is about him. And it's all about him. It's not just a mantra. It's not just some catchy slogan that we came up with. Because we thought we needed one. It is true. And the Psalms express that to us in a big way. And again, I have to go back to how we so often and how I think we wrongly approach the Psalms. When we view the Psalms as some sort of collection of categorized prayers and quotes that we pick and choose from to fit our individual needs in our specific situations, we selfishly and wrongly put ourselves at the center of the purpose of Scripture. And let me just ask you, How sin-sick are our hearts that we can take the most God-centered, the most Christ-centered thing and turn them into something that's about us? The Psalms cry out, it is not about us. It's all about him. You know, when I first started studying the Psalms, I started digging in. Instead of just looking at the Psalms at a glance, I started to notice, you know, most of the Psalms are written in prayer form. I started to notice how the psalmist is just this long prayer. 30, 50 verses long, prayer, psalm. Not one time does he ask for anything from himself. Not one time. The whole, so you have psalms just filled. It's just praise. Prayer form to God. And the psalmist is just fixed on God's worth, his value, his glory, his attributes, his creation. It's just praise. And I was floored by that because it's so contrary to how we pray. We often go to prayer and it's boom, right on us, talking about us, talking about what we got going on. You know, when was the last time you went to pray? That's a good question to ask myself. Tony Sorcy, when was the last time you went to pray? And you just, you just went to pray and all you did was just focus on God, his character, who he is, what he's done, and just offered prayers of praise, said amen, and that's it. And I didn't go on myself one time. I just said amen and I walked away. And that's a good question to ask. Because just how we often wrongly put ourselves at the center of the purpose of Scripture, we also wrongly put ourselves at the center of the purpose of prayer. I mean, how messed up are we? How self-centered, self-focused are we? You know, we think we're great. We think we're great. We think we're wonderful. And the Psalms constantly remind us that we are not. I think of Psalm 8, where the psalmist is writing, and he's just fixed on the majesty and the glory of God as shown in creation. At this one point, he says this. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? Who are we? Who are you? Who am I that God would even care? 
See, the Psalms force us to view ourselves soberly and rightly. The psalmist continually places and views himself rightly according to the greatness of God, which leads me to my next thing. The Psalms express to us the greatness of God. It is a huge misconception that the Psalms are mostly devotional. Because what a lot of people don't know about the Psalms is that the Psalms are very theological. Listen to what Martin Luther said about the Psalms. The Psalms might well be entitled a little Bible wherein everything contained in the entire Bible is beautifully and briefly comprehended. In other words, what Luther's saying is the Psalms cover the span of theology. And when you set out to study the Psalms, you're not just studying a specific type or topic of theology. You're forced to study every area of theology. So from God to man to scripture, Christ, salvation, the church, last things, every aspect of theology is covered in the Psalms. And you know what? The Psalms contain some of the most amazingly rich and theologically informed commentaries on the greatness and the glory of God. The Psalms are just flooded with big God praise language. And because the Psalms, because they're, they're poetic literature, they're, they're, they're poetic, they're written mostly as, as poems, they're poetic in its nature, they often express the greatness and the glory of God in ways that we wouldn't normally think to. I think of Psalm 97 too, which says this of God. Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Who talks like that? Seriously. I don't talk like that. I don't know anyone that talks like that, but the Psalms do. And because they're so poetic, they express to us the greatness of God in ways that we wouldn't normally think about God. I think of Psalm 139 that describes in detail the omniscience, omnipresence, and omnipotence of God. I think of some of the royal Psalms that speak of the might and strength and rule and reign of God as king. Psalm uh, 93 says, the Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He has put on strength as a belt. Powerful God. And the Psalms express that to us. Just very descriptive, big, amazing, awesome God praise language. And we, and we need it. We desperately need it. Bethel, we need the Psalms. You need the Psalms. D.A. Carson in his book, A Call to Spiritual Reformation, he said this. The one thing that we most urgently need in the Western church, that's us, is a deeper knowledge of God. The one thing that we most desperately need is a deeper knowledge of God. That is so true. You know, I think for many of us, our personal worship is so weak because our view of God is so weak. I think for many of us, our worship is so weak because we have a low view of God and an elevated view of ourselves. Listen to this quote. The book of Psalms is God's answer to a complacent church because through it he reveals how great, wonderful, magnificent, wise, and utterly awe-inspiring he is. Are you complacent? Are you in here this morning? Are you apathetic? If we want to renew our worship, it needs to start with a renewed view of God. We need a bigger view of God. We desperately need that. The last thing I want all of you to see in the Psalms is that how the Psalms express authentic worship. The Psalms express to us authentic worship. The Psalms are just filled with authentic worship. Listen to what one commentator said. We are in danger of losing the Psalms. Indeed, many have already lost it. It is no accident that many people in our congregations do not know how to pray. That is a very sad but all too true commentary. Many of us have forgotten how to pray and express praise. We have 
replace raw, sincere, transparent, biblical prayers and praise with cliche, rehearsed rambling, and God is not impressed, and he's not glorified. The Psalms offer to us nothing short of raw, full-bodied, transparent, brutally honest, theologically informed, authentic spirituality. And the Psalms get right up in our faces. They get right up in our faces and challenge us. They challenge our weak and insincere worship, our passive approach to the scriptures, and our shallow prayers. You know, I mentioned that the Psalms are full-bodied. I like that. A lot of coffees will describe themselves as full-bodied, bold, robust. Okay? I love bold coffee. I love it. I like to get bold coffee. I like to get it in beans. I put it in my grinder. I like to grind it up. I like to stick it in my French press and pour big, hot, steamy water over the top. I just like to let it sit. And the bolder, the better, the grittier, all in your teeth. Like nasty, bold coffee that keeps me awake forever. I love it. No sugar, no milk, nothing. Just bold, robust, raw, French press. Just give me some bold coffee. All right? The Psalms are like a big, hot French press of robust, full-bodied coffee. You know what our worship's like? It's like a cup of Earl Grey tea. (laughs) You laugh. It's like a little... Little cup of Earl Grey tea, okay, with a little honey in it, because when we're asked about it, we like to sugarcoat it. The Psalms are just exploding with raw, authentic worship. I just think about the psalmist's love for the Word of God. I think of Psalm 119, which has 176 verses, and all but four out of 176 verses of Psalm 119 are all about the Word of God. The whole psalm is just about the Scriptures. And there's this one verse in Psalm 119 that stuck out to me ever since I read it. Here's what it says. Your testimonies are wonderful, therefore my soul keeps them. I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commandments. I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commandments. (sighs) To have a desire for the word of God like that. I can't even say that without lying. I can't even say that without hypocrisy in my heart. I want to desire the word like that. Don't you? Don't you want to desire the word like that? Another thing the Psalms offer is some of the most honest commentaries on personal struggles with sin. Some of the most honest times of confession and repentance come from the Psalms. I think of Psalm 38 and Psalm 51 especially. And in Psalm 38 you have David. And it's after his sin with Bathsheba. And he's talking about all the damaging side effects that his unconfessed sin had on him personally, spiritually and physically. He just let his sin go unconfessed. And David in Psalm 38 gives us just an honest commentary on what was going on on him, the inner inner turmoil there. I think of Psalm 51, where you have David finally broken and repentant over his sin with Bathsheba. The whole psalm is just him finally breaking down and pouring out his heart in repentance. The Psalms show us how to rightly deal with our sin. So it's just raw. It's just raw, uncut, authentic worship. And so this morning, I want to challenge you from the Psalms. I want to challenge you to renew your worship. I want you to come to see that the Psalms are so much more than just inspirational one-liners. I want you to leave here with a renewed passion for the Psalms. And encourage you to go deeper, dig deeper into the Psalms. To go deeper in your walk with God. 
So with that said, turn in your Bibles to Psalm 100. Psalm 100. Psalm 100 is called a descriptive praise psalm because the psalm itself is very descriptive when it explains just exactly who our God is and how we are to appropriately thank and praise him. Charles Spurgeon himself said of Psalm 100 that it is all ablaze with grateful adoration. Psalm 100 is titled a psalm for giving thanks and the psalm is going to answer two questions. Just how exactly should we worship our God and why should we worship our God? So follow along as I read in my Bible from Psalm 100. A psalm for giving thanks. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. For the Lord is good. Steadfast love endures forever. And his faithfulness to all generations. The the psalmist starts off blazing in verses 1 and 2. With describing to us how we should worship our God. And the first thing he said is that our worship should be outward and expressive. Notice what he says. Make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Just look at some of the words here. Joyful. Noise. Serve. Gladness. Singing. Some of your translation in verse 1 might say, shout for joy to the Lord. Or shout joyfully to the Lord. Verse 2 says, serve the Lord with gladness. But some of your Bibles might say, worship the Lord with gladness. The idea here is that we are worshiping him. We are serving him with our worship. Serve or worship the Lord with gladness by coming into his presence with singing. The psalmist is calling all the earth to a very outwardly expressive form of thanks and praise. And you can just sense the energy here from the psalmist as he writes. You just read it. It's just like Spurgeon said. It's ablaze with grateful adoration. Now two things jump out to me when I look at verses 1 and 2. Volume and emotion. And those who know me know that I'm a big fan of volume and emotion. All my young adults are over here. They'll tell you. I'm loud and I'm emotional. Okay, but nothing brings this out more in me. Nothing brings this out more in me than watching a Bears game. Especially if it's with my dad. Okay, add to that my dad's ridiculous surround sound and his huge TV And the fact that we're just two loud, emotional dudes when we watch the Bears. It drives my wife and my mom insane. Okay? And so we're all jacked up before the game even starts. And so from opening kickoff to the end of the game, it's just filled with volume and emotion. I mean, it's mostly in the form of anger and frustration and confusion and... (laughs) Because it's the Bears and... I mean, but cheering and clapping and shouting and excitement and... Yelling at the refs and more frustration and confusion. I mean, you want to talk about the full range of human emotion. Bears fans know exactly what that's like. And in, in one game, you're up, down, here, there, everywhere. It's just like all the full range of human emotion comes out for Bears fans. Now, all of us have something like this. All of us. For you, it might not be sports. It might not be the Bears. But all of us have something that taps into this excitement. This joy, this gladness. 
We know what this is. It's not foreign to us. My question is this. Why do we have a hard time translating that here? Why do we struggle sometimes with joyful, glad, loud expression in the context of our relationship with God? And as I look at Psalm 100, and I think about our church, and I think about our services, it's not so much the, the coming into his presence with singing part that we need to work on. I think we got that down. Okay, that's a big part of what we do here every week. It's the whole doing this with joy and gladness and loudness part that I think we lack. It's the passion and the out for outward joyful expression of, of thanks through song that's sometimes missing here. And I'm not the judge, but man, sometimes I'll be in the back or I'll be in one of our services. I'll just look around and I just get so discouraged by the lack of joy by the lack of emotion that I see in us sometimes. I mean, are we at a funeral or is the tomb empty? Right? This is totally fleshy, but sometimes I like to come up, like to sneak in around like some people. I just like to start belting. I just like to start singing so loud just to see what the people around me do. They start looking backwards like, what the heck is this guy? It, it's, it's fleshy. It's sinful. It's, I probably should repent of it. It's, it's just not good. Where's the volume? Where's the emotion? I don't know if any of you have heard of Dr. Ed Stetzer, but Ed Stetzer is somewhat about local missions, church planning, church growth, church health guru. He's authored numerous books on those subjects. He's trained pastors, church planners, planted churches himself. Even more recently, he's come alongside declining churches uh, to help transition them back to a place of health. Really, all that to say is that he knows what he's talking about. Well, I went to go uh, hear Ed Stetzer speak this past May. And he said, he said one thing that's very, very interesting. He said, you can always gauge the health of a church by how loud the young men sing. You can always gauge the health of a church by how loud the young men sing. Why young men? Why young men? Because they're the future. They're the future of our churches. They're the future leaders. They're the future elders. They're the future pastors. They're the future kinship group leaders. They're the future Awana leaders. And without young men, the church will decline. But what is this connection between singing loudly and joyfully in spiritual health and maturity? I mean, you'd expect from a guy like Stetzer, like, a, man, give me a little bit more of a calculated assessment on church health. I mean, instead of just coming in and saying, well, let's check out how loud the young men are singing. What's the connection? What's the connection between spiritual maturity and singing loudly, outwardly, and expressively? I think our outward expression in song is a good gauge as to what's going on in our hearts. This is true for me. Tell me if it's true for you. If during the week I'm neglecting the word of God, and I haven't been active in fighting sin, and my prayer life is just in the dumps, and I've forgotten who God is and what he's done for me in the cross of Jesus Christ, it's in those moments that I am often quiet and detached when I come into his presence with singing. When I am detached throughout the week, when I'm detached from God's word in my heart, I'm detached in singing, in song, in praise. Only when I'm walking with him as I should throughout the week and loving him like I should, fighting sin, fighting hard to pray, and fighting hard to get into the word. On weeks and days like that, when my heart is filled up with him, I often come into his presence with singing, with gladness, making a joyful nose to the Lord. That's true for me. 
And I don't know if it's true for you. We cannot reduce our worship to singing five songs on a Sunday. We can't. We need to see our gathering here on Sundays as a church body, not as our worship as a whole, but the culmination and expression of worshiping and walking with God throughout the week. We can't just neglect God and neglect his word and neglect him in prayer throughout the week and then come here on Sunday and just flip a switch and hope Psalm 100 verse 1 and 2 comes out of our mouth. We just can't do it. Worship is the outward expression of your devotion with God, of your personal devotion, your personal worship. Outward expression is the, it's just the expression of that. But worship shouldn't be reduced to just singing an emotion either. Worship must be guided and informed by the truth. And that's exactly what the psalmist has in mind at the beginning of verse 3. Look at what he says. Know that the Lord, he is God. And in this, we're still talking about the how of thanking and praising God. And the psalmist is placing emphasis on the know. We can call this the knowing of worship or intelligent worship. Knowledge is a key component to worship because we need to know who we worship. Jesus himself said in John 4, 24, that those who worship must do so in spirit and in truth. Worship that is not informed and guided by the truth of scripture is no worship at all. Worship must be fueled by the truth. And this is where the Psalms are just so helpful because they combine rich, deep truths about God with joyful, expressive worship. And it's just the full package. And those are a package deal. Can we separate that? Can we separate rich, deep theological understanding about how great our God is from joyful expression in worship and in song? Can we separate the two? And so the psalmist wants us to know, and there are two things he wants us to get here. And the first is he wants us to know God as creator. Look at verse 3. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. Now, praise towards God as creator of the universe is just all over the Psalms. I think of Psalm 19, I think of Psalm 148, where often the psalmist will praise God for the creation of the world and everything that is in it. But the psalmist doesn't have in mind here the creation of the universe. The psalmist wants us to know that he is our creator. The fact that he has made us. God spoke words and created a vast universe. But nothing displays the unlimited power of God as we see in the pinnacle of his creation, the creation of man. Now listen as I read Psalm 139. And as I read this, I want to dedicate the reading of Psalm 139 to Evan James Wold who was born on Christmas Day to John and Laura Wold. And John and Laura Wold serve faithfully in our worship uh, ministry. And they also serve faithfully in our young adult ministry. And so Evan James Wold, nine pounds, four ounces, 21 inches long, born on Christmas Day. So John and Laura are dear to my heart. So I want to dedicate the reading of Psalm 139 to Evan James. Psalm 139, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Psalm 139 is creator God, carefully forming, shaping, and creating our bodies and the complexities of our souls. No doubt it is he who made us and we are his. But why does the psalmist want us to know this so bad? 
Why does the psalmist really want us to get this? I mean, it seems, seems sort of elementary to place emphasis on the fact that the Lord is God and that he created us. But as I thought about this a little further, maybe this is exactly what we need to know. I think the psalmist is onto something here. See, the psalmist knows the natural tendency that all of us have towards natural atheism. And natural atheism is this thing where intellectually we say that there is a God and that he made us and we are his. But naturally we are all so prone to start living and functioning in our lives as if there is no God. Theologically, we are theists. We can pass the test. We know all the truths and we can say the right words. But practically, we, we are, have this natural inclination towards being atheists. Living our lives as if God is not Lord, as if he hasn't spoken, and as if we aren't responsible and accountable to him as creator. And I think that knowing that the Lord is God, and it is he who made us and we are his, is exactly what our naturally atheistic hearts need this morning. So the psalmist wants us to know God as creator, but he also wants us to know God as redeemer. And this is what the psalmist is getting at when he says this. We are his people. We are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. You see, this points to God as redeemer because there was a time when we were not his people. Nor were we sheep in his pasture. There was a time, and for some of us in here this morning, now is still that time when we were far off from him. All of us from the fall, we were separated from God and we were not his people. Nor were we sheep of his pasture. We were sheep roaming in the pastures of the world. And we were roaming in pastures of lesser gods. And we loved breaking commandments and we loved sin and we hated God. And we didn't want anything to do with God. Because we loved doing whatever we wanted to do. And the Apostle Paul speaks of us this way in Ephesians 2 when he said this. And you were dead. And the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And we were all following the course of this world and following the prince of the power of the air. And we were all living in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Spiritually dead and cut off from God, doing whatever we wanted to do doing whatever our natural, just our sin-sick hearts just wanted to do. The desires of the body, we did it. Passions of the flesh, we did it. We just lived it out and lived however we wanted to. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. And how did he show that love? How did he show that love? He sent his best. God sent his best. His son, Jesus, who redeemed us and bought us out of this Ephesians 2 spiritually dead pit of sins by bearing the sins of the world, past, present, and future in his body on a Roman cross, dying and rising again. And he did that to your sin. He bore your sin on his body. And for those who personally trust Christ by faith, God takes those that were far off and he opens his gates And he brings them into his fold and he becomes their shepherd where he loves them and cares for them as one of his own. He is our creator. He made us and we are his. 
He is also our redeemer who saved us from our sins and brought us into his fold. And just what do you think should be the appropriate response in the hearts of all of God's people who have been personally redeemed by Jesus Christ? What should be our response to a truth like that? Look at verse 4. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. And the only thing the psalmist can think of is to come into his presence with hearts filled with praise and say thank you. That's all he can think of to do. It's just to say thank you. That's all you can do in light of the cross. It's just say thanks. And the psalmist is calling all of God's people who have been personally redeemed to enter the gates of the temple together. To come into his courts with hearts ablaze with grateful adoration to bless his name. And look at us right now. Here we are. We are here. God sent his son to rescue us from our sins. And this is why we have gathered. Or at least it should be why we've gathered. You see, it took nothing short of the precious life, death, and resurrection of God's own son to allow us the benefit of entering his gates. The privilege of coming into his courts and the access into his presence. And for that, all of us need to be immensely thankful. You guys know that Christmas was this past week. And for my three-year-old Camden, his birthday is on December 22nd. And so this time of year, Camden just shows up places just expecting to receive presents. Okay? There's every present he sees, he thinks it's his. He just wants to open every single present. So here's how opening presents with Camden goes. He'll have a present. And there's a card. Well, he's like, well, forget the card. I don't want to read the card. I just want to open the present. And I'm like, well, hold on a second, bud. Let's open the card. Let's see who it's from. You know, it's from like grandma and grandpa who are sitting over here in the fourth row. And it's usually a nice card telling them how much they love them and telling them Merry Christmas. He's just like, whatever. So he wants to open up the present. As soon as he realizes that it's closed, he just throws it to the side. He's like, whatever, lame, next present. As soon as he realizes that it's closed. But if he opens a present that he likes... And he wants to play with it. Right away, he wants me to take it out of the package so he can play with it. And if you're a parent, you know that this is increasingly becoming more and more difficult, taking presents out of the package. Like how many twisty ties and little screws do you need to hold some little piece of plastic inside of a cardboard box? And I'm like, dude, you better go say thank you because this is going to take me like three minutes to get this out of here. So he wants to open up his present right away. And I'm like, whoa, hold on. Go say thanks. Go run over to grandma and grandpa, Auntie Mel, Auntie Tess. Tell them thank you. And he just does it all reluctantly. Like it's just drudgery. And so he does this kind of thing, you know, like this, like I'm making him go do it. You know, like the kids, they got this like arms down, kind of like non-hug thing. He's like, just kind of like leans into you, right? And you're just like, you got to like hug him. You guys know what I'm talking about. <laughs> all right. And the whole time he's going around just saying thanks. His eyes are on the present. And he can't wait to get back. He can't wait until the drudgery of saying thank you is over so he can get back to playing with his present. How often must God look down on us and see a bunch of three-year-olds at Christmas? God has given us the gift of his son. And just to stretch the analogy a little bit, he's given us a card Telling us how much he loves us. And each and every week, 
We all enjoy the benefits of the shed blood of God's son as sheep of his pasture, and we don't even stop to give thanks. And when we actually do come here to give thanks, we do it like it's our duty. We do it all reluctantly and half-heartedly, with no joy and with no gladness. I mean, we come in here to give thanks, and most of us are acting like we can't wait until the agony of saying thanks is over so we can go back to our self-focus, it's all about me, lives. The psalmist says, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and bless his name. And my question is this, how in the world can God put up with us? When week in and week out, we act like that. We act like a three-year-old on Christmas. How in the world can God stomach it when we act like that? The answer is in verse 5. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. The answer to that is God's relentless, steadfast, enduring, covenant-keeping love, faithfulness, and goodness. And the same love that sent Christ in the first place is the same love that causes God to relentlessly pursue you with faithful, steadfast love and to endure your selfishness. And the reason God's love towards us is so relentless and faithful is because it's not based on our merit. God's love's not like our love. It's not conditional. It's not based on our performance or how good we are. And we can be thankful for that. I'm glad. Because you know what? I don't know about you, but I'm not good. I'm not good at all. And you know what else? I'm very prone to wandering away from God. My heart is all too often very prone to wander from God. I truly believe that if our God wasn't like this, steadfast love, faithfulness to all generations and good, I would have left a long time ago. God is so good towards us, even though we are often ungrateful and undeserving. God is so loving toward us, even though we all too easily wander off to love other things. And God is so faithful towards us, even though we are faithfully inconsistent with him. And what amazes me is that God is still all of these things to us, even when we are not to him. And I guess a reason to be thankful this morning is that our God is not like us. And as the band comes up, I want you to just bow our heads. Just bow our heads and just think about that. Or as the Psalms say, they say, Selah, which means pause and calmly think about that. I just want you to think about the appropriate response. What should be our appropriate response to a God that is like that? What should be our appropriate response to creator God who made us, who later would become one of us and grow up and die for us to redeem us, to bring us into his fold where he cares for us and loves us like one of his own. And even though we are all too often ungrateful and we go astray, he is still good to us, loving us relentlessly and forever faithful. What should be our response to a God like that? Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. Let's do that together right now.